Last week, we covered the first 12 verses, known commonly as the Beatitudes, and Jesus says, Oh, how blessed are those who are pure in heart, and he goes down the list. And now, beginning in verse 13, he tells his disciples how to live in the world as kingdom citizens. How to live in the world as kingdom citizens. And I'm going to read verses 13 through 16 to you. This is Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, some translations say savor, which means its strength. How shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket or a bushel, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works or good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now this is a very familiar passage of scripture, but one that's a little understood. Okay? So what I'm going to try to do is break this thing down for you so that you can really understand what Jesus is saying. We've all said, well, we're the salt of the earth or whatever, but we really don't know what that means. So let's discover what it means. First of all, what you have here are two metaphors. Uh, you have a metaphor of salt and you have a metaphor of light. You are the salt no, not literally the salt, but it means that you're like salt, you're like light. Metaphors. Salt and light. Salt can be touched. Light can be seen. Okay? Salt heals and light reveals. So they have two different functions. But yet both of them penetrate. Okay? Salt penetrates meat. And that's what it was used for mainly in Bible times. And light penetrates darkness. And each one as it penetrates expels something. Salt expels something from meat. And light expels something from a room when it is turned on. Now each one also is very insignificant in proportion to the size of the thing that it touches. just takes a little dash of salt on a piece of meat. It just takes a little flicker of light to light up a room. So in proportion to the size in which it touches, if you want to call that, or penetrates, light is small and uh, so is salt. So let's take a look at these two concepts. First of all, look at the first metaphor, you are the salt of the earth. Now, who is he speaking to? You. <clears throat> He's speaking to his followers. Uh, his disciples who have gathered together and the crowd who have come around and he's sitting on the mountain. He's given them the Beatitudes. Now he's telling them how to live in the world as kingdom citizens. And he says, you are the salt of the world. Or the salt of the earth, I guess it is. <clears throat> and so... Uh, the word you there, which is a pronoun, in the Greek is uh, emphatic, which means it stands alone, which is very unusual in the Greek language. Usually the verb has an ending that tells you what the pronoun is. It's only one word, usually. 
But this time you actually have a pronoun and a verb, and it stands alone, which gives an emphasis. So he's saying, you, you alone are the salt of the earth. In other words, it's not the world that is the salt of the earth. It is the believer, the follower of Jesus, who's the salt of the earth. Now, notice what you are. You are the salt. Now, the Bible times, salt was used as a preservative. Okay? So, people did not have refrigeration in those days. And so what they would do is they would take their meat and they would salt the meat and that would preserve it and keep it from decaying, keep it from corrupting. We have a curing process today. We cure hams and we can uh, salt fish and that keeps them from decaying and they can stay for a long, jerky oftentimes, if you've ever eaten like beef jerky, that has been uh, salted and it's, it stays, doesn't corrupt for a long, long time. And so salt keeps meat from decaying. So that's, how, that's what he's likening us to. Now notice this. You are the salt of the earth. Now, don't think of the earth as dirt. Okay? Think of the earth as society, as people living in the world, human, human beings, human society. So what we have is you are the preservative of society. You keep society from decaying and from corrupting. So, here we have this statement. You are the salt of the earth. Now, this statement is an assertion. This is what we are. By nature. See, that's an assertion. That's just a statement of fact. You are the salt of the earth. That's what we are. But it's also what we do. By virtue of being salt, there is a result. And this is what we do. We keep society from moral Okay. Now, when you think about that and you start making the implications, you start thinking about, well, what, what does this mean then in light of the Beatitudes? This means that we are not isolationists. There are a lot of Christians who are separatists. They do not want to be involved in the world around them. Uh, this was the whole concept of the monastery movement in the Catholic Church. The monks wanted to get away, separate themselves from the world. They thought that was going to keep them pure. But, and it may have kept them pure in body. Did not necessarily keep them pure of heart. And by separating, they never infiltrated society. So they didn't have the impact except in their writings. And this isn't talking about writing things and, you know, publishing books. So we must infiltrate and penetrate society. And when we've done that, it has an effect. So that means that you as a believer are more powerful than you realize. little bit of salt doesn't seem to be very powerful. But it has a lot of power. It has an effect. And we as believers have an effect on the world around us, whether we realize it or not. Does that make sense? So then look what he says. You're the salt of the world, or the earth. And then he has a contrast in verse 13. But if the salt loses its flavor or its savor, how shall it be seasoned? A better translation, and I think gives the meaning of this verse, uh, is this. If the salt loses its saltiness, 
If the salt loses its saltiness, how shall it become salty again? And the answer is, it can't. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it become salty again? That's a rhetorical question with an obvious answer. It can't. So, how does a salt, some salt lose its potency? How does a salt, how does salt lose its strength? Loses its strength in two ways. Number one, it can be diluted. You can mix salt with water and it gets diluted. And when it gets diluted, it loses its strength. So in Baltimore, Maryland, where we have a lot of snow, and I'm glad I don't live there anymore, they throw pure salt on the ground. They don't mix it with anything. It's pure salt. And then it starts melting the snow, but then guess what? It gets mushy, and then the salt loses its strength, its saltiness. And if it snows again, the original application doesn't work anymore because its potency has been diluted. So that's the first way that salt can lose its savor. And guess what? When it does that, it can't get salty again. Now there's a second way. You can defile the salt. It can be corrupted by adding something to it. So in Texas, when it snows, we add sand to the salt. Just a little bit of salt and a lot of sand. And guess what? The, sand, the salt loses its strength. It doesn't have the potency that the salt up in Maryland has. And so when it loses its strength, it can't do what it's supposed to do. It loses, in a sense, part of its effectiveness. So that's the question. And that's the contrast. You are the salt of the earth. But if you, being the salt, lose your potency, how will we ever get it back? And the answer is what? You can't. And then look what he said. It is good for nothing. That means it's not good for anything. Nothing means nothing. Well, he gives you a little caveat there. Except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So in other, in other words, once the salt loses its potency, it's worthless. It can't stem decay anymore. And uh, what you do then is just throw it out. So up in Maryland, they have these big machines that sweep the streets and they just throw, push that salt to the side and they throw it out because it can't be used anymore. And when you have the salt on the ground and when the sidewalk got real icy, I would throw salt out there and it would do its job, but then it got diluted and then guess what? You just come and you step on it and trample it. It's not worth anything. You don't say, oh, I have to save this salt. It's valuable. I have to use it the next time. No, you just, just stop on it. Don't even think anything of it. So there's a lesson for us that we can be diluted. We can be compromised when we compromise. And instead of penetrating society, we can uh, become worthless. We can become, we, we adopt a watered-down Christianity. Watered-down Christianity does nothing. Watered-down Christians are worthless. 
So we get watered down. And I guess many ways, just by compromise and other things, we get watered down. Or we can get defiled. We uh, get defiled by sin. We get defiled by pride. We get defiled by having wrong motivations. You can think of the ways that you get defiled. And you think, well, you know, I'm going to compromise. I'm going to sin a little. Either way, you're getting deluded or you're getting defiled. You are becoming worthless. Many people think that they can go along with the way the world lives, and they're going to do that too, and that's going to ingratiate them to people. doesn't do that. You become worthless. They throw you out. They'll reject you. They'll trample on you. Don't think that being a worldly Christian or a compromised Christian is going to uh, be effective. It's going to, you're going to lose all your effect. Because people are going to see you for what you are, a hypocrite. You call yourself a Christian, but look how you compromise there. You think the world respects that? You think, just think of every pastor that you know of that's fallen and the sin has defiled himself and become corrupted. Does the world say, oh, there's somebody just like us. Let's just embrace them. Is that what they did to Jimmy Swagger? Remember him? See, he's back on television. One of these crazy shows, the television station. No one, I look at him and laugh. It's a sad thing, isn't it? I should be brokenhearted over the man, but I, I and I am. I mean, because I laugh though because he's trying to make a comeback. But if the salt loses its potency, can it ever make the comeback? So you look and you think, well, I'll live a double life. I'll, you know, and really what it is is hypocritical. And you might think that you're gaining the respect of people by maybe joining in on some of the things that you're doing, they're doing. But in reality, they're rejecting you. They don't think much of you because you do that. So just think of Christian entertainers, for example. I was thinking that the other night with Whitney Houston. Grew up in the church. Christian entertainer. She was in the choir. Think of all the think of the Christian entertainers that you know. People even from the Dallas area that made it in the entertainment business. Saying, I'm going to make a difference. And then they compromise. Have they made a difference? Hollywood laughs at them. They're just waiting for them to make a mistake. They'll turn on them just like that. See? So, don't think that you can't lose your testimony and you can't lose your effectiveness because you can. Now, look at verse 14. We come to the next metaphor. So now here's what he says. You are the light of the world. Now again, notice that you. And that's emphatic. You. You alone are the light of the world. And then notice the word light. It means you're like light. What does light do? Light dispels darkness. That's the purpose of light. It dispels darkness. And when it dispels darkness, it enables people to see things clearly that they couldn't see before. So if we turned out all the lights in this room, and since we have no windows, we'd be in total darkness. And you wouldn't even be able to see the hand in front of your face. But 
if we lit a match, suddenly it would start dispelling the light. Even a little bit would dispel the light, and you'd be able to at least see your hand, wouldn't you? And then if we put on a, a lantern, it would dispel more light. And you might be able to see the things that are on the table. And then if you turn on the lights, and you see everything. And that's what light does. Light dispels darkness, and it allows people, it enables people to see things that they could not see otherwise. Now, another thing about light is it exposes things. Not it reveals things, but it exposes things. So if somebody comes to your house and it's dirty, you don't want all the lights on. You know, you want to keep the lights as low as you can because if you turn the lights on, wow. I'll say, boy, that's stuff. Look at that on the floor. But if the lights are dim, you can't see that. So light exposes dirt. Okay? So we have this dual purpose. Light reveals things, can reveal things in a positive way, but it can also expose things. Okay? So a light is needed. A light is needed to guide and to direct and lead. Okay? So here it is. You are the light okay, of the world. Not the globe. You're not the light of the world as we think of it, just as the globe. You're the light of society. You're the light of the people who live in the world. Notice it doesn't say you're the light of the church. We are a light to that world out there that's in darkness. To the lost people. God so loved the world. What does that mean? You love lost people. That's who we're the light to. Now, it's interesting that when you look Back in the Old Testament, that Israel is called the light. Like in Isaiah 49, it says, You're the light to the nations. All the heathen were to watch Israel the way they lived, and Israel would be a light. It'd be like a shining light. And they would realize that the God of Israel is the real God. But Israel failed. Has it ever made a comeback? <laughs> and then Jesus. It's called the light. In fact, back in chapter uh, 4, verses 15 and 16, you can see that uh, Matthew uh, quotes a prophet Isaiah. And he talks about the land of Zebulon in 4.15, just one chapter back. The land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. These are these lost Gentile masses of people. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and in the shadow of death, the light has dawned. Jesus is the light of the world. Israel was the light of the world and it failed. Jesus was the light of the world. He revealed the Father to the people. And he succeeded in what he did. Now guess what he says. Over in chapter 5, he says, you are the light of the world. That's us. And remember, Matthew's quoting this for his audience maybe 50 years later. Remember, Matthew has an audience that's reading this. We're not the only ones that have ever read Matthew, are we? Who do you think the first people were that read Matthew? Well, they were probably you know, living in somewhere between, who knows, 65 and 85. We don't know exactly the years. But they, it was an audience. And guess what? He's speaking to a church audience. It's writing to this congregation of people that are suffering. And he said, and guess what? You're the light of the world. Can a light be snuffed out? Can salt lose its potency? Yes, it can. 
And uh, he doesn't have to say that because we should understand that. So he applies it to us. And we are reading it today and we can say, he's saying to us, you're the light of the world. You have a divine mission. And our divine mission is to reveal something. Now, we reveal Christ through the gospel. That's God's revelation, isn't it? The word of God is God's revelation. That's a light. But he's not talking about us preaching the Bible here. He's not saying the Bible's the light. What's he saying? You're the light. You're the revelation of God to lost people. You're the only Bible that some people will ever read or ever see. And so thus, we are the revelation of God in person. And notice the word thee there. Do you see that? And I didn't mention it in the first one because I wanted to save it for this one. You are the light. Not a light. Not one of among many lights. You are the light. The one and only light. We are the one and only salt. We're the only ones that can stem moral decay. We're the only ones that can reveal God to people. Apart from the church, there's no light in the world today. Jesus is in heaven. We're here on earth. We're, we are the light. Now, what he does is he now gives us a truism. We're going to see two truisms. And here's truism number one, the end of verse 14. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. That's a truism. When there's a city that's way up on a hill, it can't be hidden. Why can't it? Because everybody can see it. It's up on a hill. That's why. That's a truism. In other words, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. Followers are the light of the world. If we are lights, guess what we can be? We can be seen. People can see us. It should be apparent to the people. There should be no mistaking about who the believer is, who the follower of Christ is. If we're the light, it should be apparent. No mistake about it. Now the second truism. Look at verse 15. Nor, this is the second truism, do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lamp stand. So you don't light a lamp, this is a truism, to hide it. To hide the light. I don't light a flashlight when I'm looking for something, or... If you were a miner going down into a mine shaft, you had one of those helmets on with the light on it to lead you so you can see where you're going. You don't hide the light, do you? That'd be crazy. You light a light in order that it shines. So you don't light a lamp. In this case, it would be an oil lamp and put it on a table and then put a basket over it. No, you would actually light the lamp and put it on a stand so that it's up a little higher so that it sends the light into the room and dispels the darkness. Now it's very interesting to me that he says, and notice how he, uh, the progression here, he says, you're the light of the world. Notice the world. Watch the progression. Verse 14. Look at the next word. A city. You see that? First, the world, that's pretty big, all society. Number two, a city, that's pretty big. And then, look at verse 15. Nor do you put a lamp 
under a basket of land. Now you have a household. You have a family. You have the world. You have a city. And now you have a family. Notice how the lamp, the light, penetrates. The light penetrates the world. The light penetrates a city or a city on a hill. And you have a light that shines in a household. And then it says this. And it gives, at the end of verse 15, and it gives light to all who are in the house. To how many who are in the house? To all who are in the house. Everyone benefits from the light from its illumination. Those are the two truisms. Now, based on that, Jesus gives us instructions. And look what he says. It's a command. It's an imperative. Verse 16. Let your light so shine. Let your light so shine. Like, so shine like what? Like a city that's on the hill. Like a lamp that's on a lampstand. That's how you should let your light shine. And notice it's a command to do that. He's saying, make sure your light shines like that. And then notice the next thing. Let your light shine before whom? Men. Now notice, we had in verse 13, earth. You're the salt of the earth. Verse 14, you're the light of the world. But in verse 16, it's let your light so shine before whom? Men. So here you're saying that world, earth, means men, means people. I'm not talking about the globe, I'm not talking about dirt, earth. It's talking about people. So let your light shine before people. Now the purpose statement. It all gets down to this. You can always find a purpose statement by the word that, or so that, or in order that. Here's the command, let your light shine in that same way before people, so that, or that, they may see your good works. Now we discover what it means to let our light shine. It means that we perform what? Good works. That means you smile. Oh, look at that. Look at, his, look at that. Well, his light shining. This little light of mine. No. The shining is... What do they see? They don't see a light, literal light. What do they see? Good deeds. That's how we let our light shine. Through our good deeds. What good deeds? Oh, the ones that were listed in the Beatitudes. <laughs> being merciful, being compassionate, being peacemakers, doing righteous things, and so on. In other words, it's your way of life that people see. That's your life. Oh, how blessed are those who live this way, the Beatitudes say, because people will see it. So Christians are attractive, aren't they? They attract people. We're lights. Our deeds, Christians are not only attractive, they're active. We have deeds. Good deeds. See, that's what it meant back in 
3.8 where the Pharisees came to be baptized by John. He says, well, bring forth the fruits of repentance first. Let me see some good deeds. Let me see that you're sincere. You're a bunch of hypocrites. Just trying to get in on this thing. Cause some trouble. So, that they may see your good deeds. That's your light. And look at the result. And glorify, this is the end result, when they see your good deeds, glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is the first time the word Father is mentioned in the Gospel. It will not be the last time. So God is introduced, God the Father is introduced here in conjunction with others seeing our deeds and then in return praising God the Father. So this verse right here, these verses, in fact this verse, interprets, it instructs and it applies uh, verses 13 through 15 to our own situation. Now, let me make a couple statements and draw a conclusion here. Okay, statement number one is this. When we permeate the world, we're not isolationists. We infiltrate the world. We'll make a difference. But, according to the Beatitudes, you might be persecuted for it. Remember, blessed are they who are persecuted? Uh, you may be persecuted uh, even in doing good. Okay. So don't expect to do good and then everyone's going to praise you. They don't praise you. What's the result? They praise who? God the Father may actually kill you. You know, Jesus did good deeds and they crucified him. So uh, we can make a difference, but that don't think that that's going to mean that you're going to get away with out some sort of persecution. You may not be persecuted, but guess what? You might be persecuted. Okay? That's number one. On the other hand, if you think, well, I'll compromise a little bit, and this way the world will accept me, and they won't, you know, it'll be a little easier to live the Christian life, because I'll sort of infiltrate, and I'll be like others. Uh, well, that's wrong thinking, because in reality, you've lost your potency, and they'll just trample you underfoot. They'll throw you out. They'll reject you. Either way, you're getting rejected. One persecuted for righteousness sake, the other one for being a compromiser. So it's better to be persecuted for righteousness sake. Doing right things. Good things. And if you're a compromiser, you have no effect on people. So this brings us to the big question. At least for me. To get it out of the, the theoretical area. We need to ask, well, what does it mean to penetrate society? Does it mean to be politically involved? Is that how Christians penetrate society? Does it mean that we fight for the right legislation? Is that what this Jesus is talking about here? Does it mean we fight for our rights? Tells you what it means. It means you do good deeds. You say, well, I think that we should fight for our rights and we should be involved in the political process. Hey, in America, we can do that, can't we? We can do that. But guess what? Christians around the world can't do that. You think they can do that in Iran? Things say, I want my rights. I want this guy in charge. You think they can do that in North Korea? They have a freedom to legis get legislation passed? Can they do it in Cuba? 
You think they could do it in Hitler's Germany? There's nothing wrong with getting involved in being a cultural warrior in America, because guess what? Our Constitution allows that, but that's not a universal principle. That's not what Jesus is talking about. What's he talking about? He's talking about doing your good deeds. Can you do good deeds in Cuba? Can you do good deeds in Iran? Can you look out for the orphans in North Korea? Can you help women that are pregnant and been thrown out by their husbands because they've committed adultery and they husbands want them dead? Can you rescue them? Can you take care of orphans? Can you show kindness to people who have not had any kindness shown to them? Can you reach down and help somebody out of the gutter? Can you take an alcoholic and wrap your arms around him? Can you go work and arrest? Hey, when you do that, guess what? Your good deeds, when you do that, you are penetrating society. You are making a difference. You are rescuing. You're redeeming. You're ending corruption. You're stemming decay. And the world sits up and takes notice because you're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world. This is what we are by our nature. You are salt. By your nature, you're like salt. By your nature, you're like light. As long as we don't get defiled, as long as we don't get polluted, and we do what God wants us to do, and we perform these good deeds. When we perform these good deeds, we reveal God, what God's like to people. When we are the salt of the earth, we reveal God to the people. God is a redeemer. God is a rescuer. God is the one who brings salvation. Christians around the world can do this. Hey, you lead a revolution in India. You start preaching the gospel in some parts of India, not all of India, but some parts of India, where it's the Hindu section of India, you'll be put to death. Or in the Muslim part of India, you might be put to death by preaching the gospel, because it's against their law in certain parts. Or in Saudi Arabia, preach the gospel, see what happens. But in India, if you're Mother Teresa, and you reach down, and you love the unlovable, and you touch the untouchables, and you deal with the people who have AIDS and have leprosy, the world sits up and takes notice, and they say, I see God in that person. This is what we're called to do, friends. Let's make sure that we understand that our first mission is to be the salt and light of the earth. Now, when we get to verses 17 and onward, Jesus starts... Filling that out. Well, what does it look like? Well, let me tell you. It looks like loving your enemies. It looks like, you know, doing this and doing that. Now he's going to get down to the specifics. Tell us what some of those good deeds are and how you can be diluted and how you can be polluted. And he'll now sort of flesh this whole thing out for us in the remaining of the Sermon on the Mount. And that's where we'll pick up next week. Lord, we thank you that we do live in a country where we have certain rights. But help us to remember those Christians who don't around the world. And yet, Lord, we all have the same mission. We can all do good deeds. And this is how you're revealed. Oh, Lord, help us to be light. Pure light that breaks through darkness. 
People are living in ignorance. They have no clue about you. They're in darkness. Mental darkness, intellectual darkness, spiritual darkness. Help us to break through, dispel the darkness. Help us to be the salt, Lord, that, that penetrates society, stems moral decay. Oh, Lord, help us to be the salt and light of the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.